Man, my heart's full, and we haven't even gotten to the message yet. Great having our song leader back. He's gone like all the time now, out <laughs> preaching other places, singing other places, and I'm glad he's back this morning. Man, it makes a difference when he's around, doesn't it? And uh, the Lord is good. That amen, hey, you should enjoy my song leading too when I do it. No, I'm just, <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. Nehemiah chapter number 9 this morning. Nehemiah chapter number 9. Been in the book of Nehemiah since we got back together, and uh, back in May, and when we got back into this place, we've been in Nehemiah, and we've still got four more chapters to go. Nehemiah chapter number nine would probably be one of those chapters that you would read a little bit of, and you'd be like, "Where is this going?" And then you might just skip it a little bit. But there is—it's a powerful passage, and there is some great truths I want to give you this morning. We read and we studied for the first several weeks, the first seven chapters, Nehemiah's main goal is to rebuild the wall. The wall in Jerusalem needs to be rebuilt, and he spends a lot of time, there's a lot of opposition against things, and they get the wall rebuilt in 52 days. It's an amazing accomplishment that takes place. But there's a transition that takes place from the beginning of the book to this part of the book. Nehemiah goes from building a wall to helping build the people. The walls had to be up because they needed the defenses around the city. But now Nehemiah focuses and turns his attention from that to building the people and getting the people where they need to be and really putting first things first. You'll notice in chapter number 8 where we were last week, we saw what happens. They get the book of the law, they get the word of God, and they start reading the word of God. And in the middle of the city for hours, they stand and just hear the law of God, be, God being read. And the Bible tells, says that the people got sorrowful. And were they sorrowful maybe because they hadn't hurt in such a long time? Maybe because they weren't living it like they should? Maybe, who knows what was going on exactly. But we read last week how Nehemiah reminded them, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. We get to chapter number 9 this morning, and we see the chapter begins, the Bible tells us in verse number 1, Now on the twenty and fourth day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting and with sackcloth and earth upon them. And the seed of Israel separated themselves from all strangers and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read in the book of the law of the Lord their God one-fourth part of the day, and another fourth part they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. And then the Bible tells us here, then stood up upon the stairs, there were some people, some of the Levites and different folks that stood on the stairs on this side, and then there were some that stood on the other side of the assembly, and the assembly was in the middle. So what you would here is, it was almost a choir on both sides, and you would have those who were confessing sin on this side, confessing the sins, and then you would have the choir on this side proclaiming the greatness of God in the midst of it. So they were going back and forth, and the people were assembled in the middle. So what we see take place, we look at verse number 5, we see this is how the worship service began. It says in the middle there, it says, Stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever, and blessed be thy glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Thou, even thou, art Lord alone. 
Thou hast made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth, and all things that are therein, the seas, and all that is therein, and thou preservest them all, and the host of heaven worship thee. Father, bless the next few minutes that we have this morning as we look at this passage of Scripture together. We love you, and we need you. And I pray that as we look at this today, that you would do a work in our hearts and in our lives and help us today to be changed by this passage of Scripture. There's a lot here before our eyes. Do a work in us that only you can do. It's not about the guy speaking this morning. It's about your word and the Spirit of God moving. We love you. We need you. We praise your precious name. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We saw last week that the people were supposed to stop mourning and start rejoicing. We see at the beginning of this chapter, things have changed just a little bit. The people are fasting. They're in sackcloth and ash, and they're repenting of their sins, confessing them to God. You see there's a correlation. There's a way that this goes. You see what happened with the people was they started by getting in the book. As they got into the book, they realized that they were not what they should be. And Christian, when you get in the book... It's going to reveal things about us, and we're like, ooh, that's not so good, is it? Maybe there's some things I need to change about myself because we look at the book and we see God's standard and we see who God is, and we're like, wow, we don't add up. That's where the children of Israel were. They read the book, and wow, we haven't been doing these things. And what we see throughout this chapter is, as I mentioned, you got your choir on both sides, You have those who are confessing the sins and the wrongs that Israel has done. And you have those on this side that are talking about the greatness of God, how even in the midst of Israel not following God, God was still great. God never stopped. In the midst of Israel messing up and in their confession, we didn't follow you, you you did all these things. You have on this side, you have the crowd saying, but God is still good. He still led them with a pillar by day and with fire by night. He still gave them manna every day. He might have had, over here you have them say, he had to punish us and for 40 years we had to wander in the wilderness. And you have the folks on this side saying, in the wilderness, fed us every day. In the wilderness, our clothes didn't wear out. And you had the goodness of God. And you had the folks over here saying we get to our new land and God gave us our new land and we still didn't do what was right. And you had the folks on this side saying, but God was merciful to us. God was gracious to us. And what a powerful perspective, what a powerful prayer and praise we have found in Nehemiah chapter number 9. As we dive in, in just a minute, we're going to get into all these different things. What a powerful prayer. One of the most powerful prayers and confession and praise we see in Scripture is here in Nehemiah chapter number 9. Nehemiah 9 records an extended prayer, which is in fact the longest prayer outside of the book of Psalms. D.L. Moody once asked someone to pray during a church service. The man began his prayer and was still praying after 10 minutes had gone by. And still, can you imagine, you know, you ask someone to pray at the end of the service, and after 10 minutes they're still going. Finally, D.L. Moody, he stood up and said, well, our dear brother is finishing his prayer. Let's turn to number 342 and sing it together. And this prayer in Nehemiah is not that long, so we won't be here that long this morning. 
but it's a great model for us to study and great reminder for us of several things about God. The prayer is a brilliant prayer, a biblical quotations, recollections of what God had done for the children of Israel. There's images, there's pictures here. The Levites who led the people in this prayer confession knew the scripture and knew what had gone, taken place, the history of things. In my study of this passage, I stole the outline from someone else. I don't steal outlines often, but when I do, I give credit to whom credit is due. One of my favorite commentators to read is Warren Worsby. He died this last year, a great man of God, pastored many years, and has so much biblical knowledge. I feel like, compared to that guy, I have like a pinky nail of knowledge compared to that guy. I stole his outline. And so I gave credit to him, so I'm not plagiarizing it completely, but I am stealing his outline. He looked at this text, and he had a three-point outline, which I think just fits it perfectly. We're going to dive in this morning and get to the outline. Number one this morning, we see the greatness of God. Number one, we see the greatness of God. Verse number one indicates to us that the Israelites gathered together on the 24th day of the month. For them, this was October. So this was, this was the last day of their month in October, so it was the end of October, and they were fasting. They were in sackcloth, they had put dust on their heads, and this was a common sign of mourning in those days. And they were often done when Old Testament believers were in deep sadness because of maybe the loss of someone or because they were repenting and repentant and they were confessing their sins to God. And that's what we see take place. Verse number two tells us, that they separated themselves from all those who would be a bad influence on them. I'm sure that they read, and maybe some of the passage that they read during this time, because they read the book of the law, was in Leviticus, chapter number 20. And that verse tells us there, verse 26, And ye shall be holy unto me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and have severed you from other people, that ye should be mine. And may I just remind you of something? When God sent them to the promised land, remember he told them, drive out the Canaanites. Was it that God hated the Canaanites? God didn't hate. God doesn't. He loved the world. He gave his son, correct? The issue was God didn't want the Canaanites to influence his people. Because if the Canaanites influenced Israel, Israel would end up being like the Canaanites. And what ends up happening? Israel becomes like the Canaanites. That's why God drives them out of the land. And so as we see here in their confession, we see the fact and that they had to... Uh, as we look here, they separated themselves. And Christian, may I remind you of something today? Some of us are way too cozy with the things of this world. God wants our lives to be lived distinctly for him. You're separated, set apart, you're saved. Live like it. Now, I'm not telling you to go around and I can't hang around you because I'm holier than that. That's, so, that's not what I'm talking about. You're separated, you're set apart, be holy. Don't let wrong influences lead you. Let godly influences. That's why it's so important, the things that you watch and the things you let into your head. We'll talk more about that later on. Someone said it like this, that separation without devotion to the Lord can become isolation. But devotion without separation is hypocrisy. You notice they stood up, they confessed sins, not only the sins of their fathers, but their sins as well. And that's the order. That's the way it works. You get into the Bible, 
you see that we're not, we fall short. The Bible reveals, it's like looking into a mirror. How many of you looked in a mirror this morning before you came to church? Most of you here. Why do you look in a mirror? Well, if I got a pimple, let me make sure I cover it with the makeup, or I got to make sure the makeup's just, I make sure the hair's right, or, you know, whatever the case may be. I looked in a mirror. We all do. The mirror shows you your imperfections, correct? It magnifies things. The Bible's like a mirror. Whoa, I'm not as good as I thought I was. Well, I'm not near as good as I, because in all honesty, we all think we're good, right? The Bible talks about in the book of Ephesians, no man ever hated his own flesh. You don't, no one hates them, you know, in all honesty, anyone might say, I hate myself. Someone might say that in a moment, but most of the time, we love ourselves. The Bible reveals our sin, and we confess it, and we get right, and then we worship God for who he is. That's the pattern we see found in this passage here. And as we look at this and as we dive in, verse 4 and 5 explain to us how they conducted this worship service. As I mentioned, the Levites divided themselves into two groups. Some were standing on stairs on one side of the assembly. The others were across from them. And these two groups would call back and forth to the congregation. One, cr- one group confessed the sin, while the other praised God for his greatness. The first group called with a loud voice. They cried out. The second group focused on God's character as they sang. And that's what this whole chapter is full of. There was cries of guilt, followed by shouts of praise for God's goodness in the midst of it all. In verse number 5, we see the worshipers were invited. In verse 5 there, it says, Stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever, and blessed be thy glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Before they got to true confession, they worshipped God and settled on his greatness. I'll get to a minute why that's so important here in just a minute. We see that their prayer continues on, and blessed be thy glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing. In this chapter, the believer reflects on God's nature and character as well as his mighty acts in history. It's true adoration to God. If you're struggling with your faith this morning, and I think that there are a lot of people with everything going on around us that are struggling with their faith this morning. The problem is, how do we view God? A lot of Christians today have a very small God. That's how they view God. So, pastor, look at everything around. I get it. I realize there are things going on and a lot of craziness around us. But how you view God depends on how you view everything else. Don't lose sight of that. We live in a day and age where there's a lot of fear. The Bible talks about fear. What time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do unto me? For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. This is what happens. What is bigger in your life today? Those watching online, those here this morning, what is bigger? Is your God bigger today? Or is COVID-19 bigger today? That's how, we, that's how it happens. Because this is how it works. If we are fearing things, 
Where's the faith? Faith and fear cannot be together. They don't work that way. That's not how it works. Fear is the opposite of trusting. Now, may I remind you of something? I am not telling you this morning, don't be careful in what you do. Be wise in the things that you do. Wash your hands. Do your whatever you need to do. You figure out and you do it. I'm not telling you not to do those things. But this is the truth. God knows when Brian Pattison's going to die. I'm 35, turned 35 ago. I do not know my expiration date. But do you know something? God already does. It's been settled. Nothing's going to change that. No virus is going to change it. No, nothing. I can trust the Lord today. How big is your God? We live today and we maximize our problems because we don't view God the way we should. Where we need to make God big and your problems won't seem so big. If God could lead the children of Israel across the Red Sea and part it and then get over, he can help you with your problems today. How big is your God? That's one of our biggest problems we have today. How do you view God? We must view God correctly. Someone, uh, David Wells, he's a theologian, he refers to this view as the weightlessness of God. He writes that our sense of inadequacy or, or ineffectiveness can be traced to our limited understanding and experience of God. This is what he says in his book. God rests too um, consequentially upon the church. His truth is too distant, his grace too ordinary, his judgment too benign, his gospel too easy, and his Christ too common. Don't ever view God the wrong way. Where we are today, put God where he belongs. Remember, remember how um, Isaiah, when Uzziah the king died, Isaiah was having a tough time with that. What did Isaiah, the book of Isaiah chapter 6 says he saw the Lord high and lifted up. We got to get the right view of God. The greatness of God. Let's go on to verse number 6 there. It says, Thou even thou art Lord alone. Thou hast made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all things that are therein, the sea and all that is, in, that is therein. And thou preservest them all, and the host of heaven worship thee. Friends, we got a glory in the incomparable magnificence of our great God. Verse 6 makes a statement, there is no one like you. Do you realize this morning, there is no one else who could create like God created. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He said, let there be light, and light appeared. He spoke this world into existence. He brought the sun, the moon, the stars. He did all of these things, and there is no one like him. No one can be compared to our great God this morning. The evidence of his greatness is seen in creation. The Bible tells us the heavens declare the glory of God. During the French Revolution, many people wanted to get rid of Christianity forever. One on one clear night, an atheist boastfully proclaimed his beliefs to a poor peasant and said, everything will be abolished. There will be no more churches, 
no more Bibles, no more clergy. Yes, even the word God itself will soon be gone. We'll remove everything that speaks of religion. The peasant gave a quiet chuckle, and the atheist wanted to know what the believer was laughing about. The peasant then pointed to the stars and replied, I was just wondering how you're going to manage to get all those bright lights out of the sky. Because the heavens declare the glory of God. And no one can get rid of that. I don't know if you noticed, did you, yesterday, did you look up in the sky how blue it was? It was bluer than blue. You say, how's that even, I don't know if the smog was less yesterday. I don't know what it was, but the sky was just so blue. The day before, though, there was a lot, so I don't know. But you look at it, and God created it. The other day, Art and I, Art, since the beginning of the year, I've been losing weight. 90 pounds, I'm down. And I started walking, and Art, just a while back, he started doing the same thing, and he's lost 30, 35, 35 pounds. He said, Pastor, I have you to thank or me to not thank for that. And so we went on a hike in the mountains together. And Art, 65, and he, he was good to go. He wanted to go to San Antonio Falls. So he went up to, and he did the walk, but it was so neat getting by that waterfall and seeing, there's, you know, there hasn't been snow up there. There's still water there. And just saying, you just, how can people not, how can people deny the existence of God? I don't get it. God is great. We see the greatness of God. And the children of Israel, as they're starting their praise, God, there's no one like you. They reveled in the greatness of God. Number two, they talked about the goodness of God here. The goodness of God. A bulk of this chapter, verse number 7 through verse number 30, is all about how good God is. God is the, clearly the focal point of this passage. The word thou or you is used over 50 times from verse 7 through verse number 30. And the word give or gave is used in one form or another at least 16 times in this passage between verse um, 7 and verse 15. This part of the prayer goes over all the things that God did for Israel. And they were just resting in and reveling in the goodness of God. And yet they go and they talk about all the repeated failures of the people. Um... Someone said this, he who forgets the past is condemned to repeat it. I'm going to repeat that one more time for you. He who forgets the past is condemned to repeat it. Why do you think God wanted Israel to remember the things that he did for them? So they wouldn't have to repeat the things. Man, may I remind you of something? In America today, there's a lot of talk of destroying our past. Do you realize not all the past is great things? It's not because we live in a sinful world. Not every decision that every founding father or anyone else did was perfect. Because there's only one perfect one that ever lived. His name was Jesus. No matter what that CNN anchor, Mr. Lamont or whatever his name says. But if we erase our history, we're just going to keep repeating it. History is important to learn from so you don't make the same mistakes over. The Bible tells us in Romans 15, verse number 4, it says, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of all of the Scriptures might have hope. 
God's goodness is seen in this passage in four ways. The first way is this, in their forming, in the forming of Israel, in their forming. Verse 7 through verse 18, the prayer begins with how God formed the nation of Israel. Look at verse number 7. It says, Thou art the God, the Lord, the God, who didst choose Abram, and brought him forth out of the Ur of the Chaldees, and gave him the name of Abraham. And foundest his heart faithful before thee, and madest a covenant with him to give the land of the Canaanites, and the Hittites, the Amorites, and the Perizzites, and the Jebusites, and the Girgashites, to give it, I say, to his seed, and hast performed thy words, for thou art righteous. And didst see the affliction of our fathers in Egypt, and heardest their cries by the Red Sea, and showest signs and wonders upon Pharaoh, and on all his servants, and on all the people of the land. For thou knewest that they dealt proudly against thee, so didst thou get thee a name as it is this day. And thou didst divide the sea before them, so that they went through the midst on the sea on dry land. And their persecutors thou threwest into the deeps, as a stone into a mighty waters. Moreover, thou lettest them in the day by a pillary cloud, by a cloudy pillar, and the night by a pillar of fire, to give them light in the way wherein they should go. Thou camest down also upon Mount Sinai, and spakest unto them from heaven, and gavest them right judgments and true laws, good statutes and commandments, and madest known unto them thy holy Sabbath, and commandest them precepts, statutes, and laws by the hand of Moses thy servant, and gavest them bread from heaven for their hunger, and broughtest forth water for them out of the rock for their thirst, and promised them that they should go in to possess the land which thou hadst sworn to them. But they and our fathers dealt proudly, and hardened their necks, and hearkeneth not to thy commandments, and refused to obey. Neither were mindful of thy wonders that thou didst among them, but hardened their necks, and in their rebellion appointed a captain to return to their bondage, but thou art a God ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and forsookest them not. We see in these verses here that he led Abram out, called him out of the Ur of the Chaldees to set up the nation of Israel. We see that Israel was established and while in Egypt they got enslaved there, and God was good and got the children of Israel out of Egypt. And he led them, crossed the Red Sea, and did all these things for them. And then in verse 13, they recall God's goodness in giving of the law to them. And in verse 14 and 15, they praise God for forming that nation and for giving them the possession of the land that was promised to them. Then we see they talk about their wrongs. In verse 16 and 17, our fathers were proud, they hardened their necks, they refused to obey, neither were mindful of thy wonders that thou didst among them. They hardened their necks, all these different things. But God was still good. Do you see that there? Do you see how we see that God was good in the forming of Israel? And Israel, God did all these things. He established them as a nation. He led them out of Egypt. He led them by day. He gave them the law. He established them as a nation. And in the midst of it all, Israel over and over forsook God. God from God. But God was still good. He was still gracious, full of compassion. 
We see God's goodness in their forming. Letter B, we see it in, the, in his leading. After forming the nation, God was committed to leading his people on a daily basis, even when they disobeyed him. Look at verse number 19. Yet thou in thy manifold mercies forsookest them not in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud departed not from them by day to lead them in the way, neither the pillar of fire by night to show them light, and the way wherein they should go. Thou gavest also thy good spirit to instruct them, and withholdest not thy manna from their mouths, and gavest them water for their thirst. Yea, forty years didst thou sustain them in the wilderness, so that they lacked nothing. Their clothes waxed not old, and their feet swelled not. We see in their forming and their leading, God was committed to leading his people on a daily basis, even when they disobeyed him. Think about that. It was God's mercy that the cloud still led them by day and the fire by night. God was still good in leading them. He led them 40 years as they wandered in the wilderness. Think about this, which leads to letter C, God's provision. Hey, think about what, what the Lord did for them. In verse 20 through, 22 through 25, and you can read those later on. I'm going to go through here. But God's goodness is seen through his forming of, his, of the nation, how he led them on a daily basis, and how he provided everything that they needed. Hey, he gave them manna when they needed it. Think about this. The 40 years they wandered in the wilderness, their clothes didn't wear out. They didn't need new shoes. Man, I got four kids. My oldest is nine, youngest is three. And my, my oldest, William, he's, he's been going through his clothes. He's on a growth spurt. We just had to get him new clothes again because he just outgrew the stuff he had. Imagine 40 years in the wilderness and never having to buy a new pair of clothes. Man, if you gained weight, your clothes just grew with you. If you lost weight, they just shrunk down with you. It just worked out nice, right? Your shoes never wore out. God provided everything that they needed all along the way. And yet, as he provided everything in the wilderness, do you remember what happened in the wilderness? Wasn't there a golden calf that was made? There was a golden calf that was made. Weren't there those who called out against God? They were thirsty. They always, were against, they always wanted God to do certain things and all of this. But what we see is that God took care of them. Look at verse 25. It says, And they took strong cities and a fat land and possessed houses full of all goods, wells digged, vineyards, olive yards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they did eat and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in thy great goodness. Man, they, they were provided housing that they didn't have to work for. They were provided, the fruit, the fruit was ready on the tree to be picked. The food was just waiting for them. God provided everything that they needed. And the psalmist here, not the psalmist, in the book of Nehemiah, they're praying to God. They're talking about God's greatness. And then they see God's goodness in leading the children of Israel. And as we look here, in providing for them. God gave them everything that they needed. They reveled in God's goodness. God provided above and beyond for his people. And then letter D, we see in his correcting. God is good in his correcting. Now that's a tough one to swallow for all of us. How can God be good when he's correcting us? How did God correct them? By handing them over to their enemies. 
to the Assyrians, to the Babylonians, to the Persians, to the Greeks, to the Romans. Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. Isn't that what the Bible says? God was good in correcting his people. Now, you, don't, you say, I don't understand. How could that, how is God being good by correcting them? Because they had gotten away from him, and he was getting them back. Those of you who have children or had children, the Bible makes it clear. When you correct them, it shows that you love them because you're helping them to be better. The Lord loved his children, and he corrected them to get them to go on the right path. He did it to get them back in his goodness. That might not make complete sense to all of us, but look at, look at verse 27, the middle of there. When they cried unto thee, thou heardest them from heaven. And according to thy manifold mercies, thou gavest them saviors who saved them out of the hands of their enemies. We see how God works. We see it here. Verse 28, we see, but after they had rest, they did evil again before thee. Therefore leftest thou them in the hand of their enemies, so that they would have dominion over them. Yet when they returned and cried unto thee, thou heardest them from heaven, and many times didst thou deliver them according to thy mercies. And really, that's talking about what took place in the book of Judges there. You have a deliverer, you have these things happen. But church, let's put this down on our level for a minute. God's greatness is displayed all around us. God's goodness is all around us. We talk about how Israel talked about God's forming of them, how God chose Abraham to be the head of the nation. May I remind you that before the foundation of the world, God chose you and me and him in Christ. God's goodness is seen everywhere. He loved you enough and chose you before the foundation of the world to be his child. And he leads you through life. He provides. If God can take care of the sparrows and make sure the grass has its water, how much more does he provide and take care of you and me? And God's goodness is seen when he corrects us because he loves us and wants us to get back to him. One thing that you'll see over and over again as we talk about the goodness of God is this, that God's goodness never changed. The children of Israel changed. God never changed in the midst of it all. God led them out. God was there. God never changes. God led them, but Israel's the one who got away from God. But God was still right there. Hey, God provided for them, and yet they got away from him. And yet he was still there to provide for them. What a God we serve this morning. And church, don't ever forget, God is good all the time God's good. And sometimes we look to God and we're like, oh, God's only good when things are going good in my life. Then I know God's good. No, God is good no matter what's going on in life. God is always good. The goodness of God never ends, for the Lord is good. He's good this morning. You say, oh, pastor, you don't understand what's taking place in my life this morning. You don't understand God's goodness. He's still right there, and he's still good. 
And he promises to work all things together for good. To them that love God, to them who are the call according to his purpose. But pastor, it's not good. I don't like what's happening. It's not what I want. And I just don't get it. God is still good. And he's still working it together for good. God is good this morning. He's given us all that we need. He's provided everything for us. Corey Tenboom wrote this. She, they, she said, Deep in our hearts we believe in a good God, yet how shallow is our understanding of His goodness. How often I have heard people say how good God is. We prayed that it wouldn't rain for our church picnic, and look at the lovely weather. Yes, God is good when He sends good weather. But God was also good when He allowed my sister Betsy to starve to death before my eyes in a German concentration camp. God is good all the time. All the time. It doesn't change. And though people change, and circumstances here change, my God never changes. We have a great God. We have a good God. And number three and lastly this morning, we have the grace of God. The grace of God. The praise team once again belts it out in verse 31. Nevertheless, for thy great mercy's sake, thou didst not utterly consume them, nor forsake them, for thou art a gracious and merciful God. Aren't you glad this morning that God doesn't treat his people as they deserve? Aren't you glad that God doesn't treat us the way we deserve to be treated? I'm glad about that this morning. You see, when you think about that, because he's a God of grace, he is good to his people even when they're not good to him. In mercy, God didn't give them what they deserved. In his grace, he gave them what they didn't deserve. Put it this way for us. In mercy, he isn't sending us to hell. But in his grace, not only is he not sending us to hell, he's giving us heaven and the Holy Spirit to live inside of us. That's the difference between mercy and grace. But God is a gracious God. Verse 33, you drop down there, it says, How be it thou art just in all that is brought upon us, for thou hast done right, and we have done wickedly. We see these things before our eyes here, and we look at this passage of Scripture. And what we see is over and over again, the children of Israel did wrong. And over and over again, we see that God was good. We see that God's great. We see that God's gracious. What I want to encourage you with this morning as we close is the fact that God never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Bible tells us, I am the Lord, I change not. Man, Israel messed up over and over again. Sometimes I read the Bible and I look like, how could Israel be so stupid? But then when I look in the mirror at myself sometimes in the morning, I say, how could I be so stupid? How could I? And we look at Israel and we're like, man, well, how could they do those things to God? And it's like, oh, how do I do those things? We all do it. But do you know what's great? That God doesn't give up on us. He doesn't. He loves you this morning. We see the greatness of, the goodness of God and His grace. 
Stories told of a young lady named Christina. Not this Christina over here, but a different one, of course. Floor to sleep on. That was her bed. Basin and a wood-burning stove. She dreamed of a better life in the city, and one morning she slipped away, breaking her mother's heart, knowing what life on the streets would be like for her daughter. The mom, Maria, hurried and packed to go find her. On her way to the bus stop, she entered a drugstore to get one last thing, pictures. She sat in the photography booth, closed the curtain, and spent all she could on pictures of herself. With, a, with her purse full of small black and white photos, she boarded the next bus to the city. Maria knew Christina had no way of earning money. She also knew that her daughter was too stubborn to give up. When pride meets hunger, a human will do things that were before unthinkable. Knowing this, Maria began to search for her daughter in bars, hotels, and nightclubs, any place with a bad reputation. She went to them all. And at each place, she left her picture taped on a bathroom mirror or um, tacked to a hotel bulletin board, fastened to a corner of a photo booth. On the back of each photo, she wrote a note. wasn't too long before both the money and the pictures ran out and Maria had to go home. The weary mother wept as the bus began its long journey back to her small village. It was a few weeks later that that young Christina descended the hotel stairs. Her young face was tired. Her brown eyes no longer danced with youth, but spoke of pain and fear. Her laugh broken. Her dream had become a nightmare. A thousand times over, she had longed to trade these countless beds for her palate. Yet her village was in many ways too far away. As she reached the bottom of the stairs, her eyes noticed a familiar face. She looked again, and there on the lobby mirror was a small picture of her mother. Christina's eyes burned and her throat tightened as she walked across the room and removed the small photo. Written on the back was this compelling invitation, Whatever you have done, whatever you have become, it doesn't matter. Please come home. I think that's exactly what God says to his children. Israel, I've been good to you, and yet you leave me, and I'm still good. You do something else, but I'm gracious. I'm slow to anger. Maybe there's a Christian sitting in the room this morning that's gotten away from God. Maybe you need to be like the prodigal son and come to yourself. And go back to your father. He loves you. He won't leave you. He's there. He wants you to come back. Maybe this morning you need to come back to God. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't know that you're saved and don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior. You can't be a son or a daughter of the King unless you're a child of the King first. You must be born again. Maybe you need to get saved this morning. I don't know. Maybe you just need to reflect on the greatness of God today, on his goodness and on his grace. Christian, it is so vital in your life today to get a proper view of who God is. Put God in his rightful place. Make big of God, and guess what will happen? 
our problems will seem smaller. Make big of problems and our God seems smaller. Your God is big enough to carry you through. And man, what a powerful, it would have been so neat. I hope in heaven, there's a big theater in heaven where we can go back and see these things, how they played out. I'd love to see the one choir confessing the sins, and I'd love to see the other choir praising God and the people worshiping God in the middle. I'd love to see all that take place. But church, may we never forget. May we hold on to the fact that as we read the word of God, we're going to notice there's some things we probably should clean up in our lives. And as we do, we can worship the one who's been constant throughout. He's so good to us. God is great. God is good. And God is gracious. Thank God for who he is this morning. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your love and your mercy and your grace. Thank you for being in control of everything. 